So as we begin to think biblically about who we are in Christ, we don't want to make this up. Oh, I think I'm this or I think I'm that. We want to get it right from the scriptures. The first three messages about who we are from Christ are going to come from three key illustrations in the New Testament about who we are in Christ. They all begin with the letter B. The fourth message will look at some smaller verses and other uh, words that are used to describe who we are in Christ. But primarily in the New Testament, we are going to see we are part of his building, the house of the Lord, part of his body, and part of his bride. The church universal is the bride of Christ. The church universal is the body of Christ. The church universal is the building, the holy temple in the Lord that our brother Gilson read about. But we're going to see it's not just the universal church. We're going to see the focus narrow and narrow and narrow until the focus becomes you and I. That we individually are also a temple of the Lord. We want to look this morning only at that, uh, this subtopic that we are part of his building. This is going to involve two analogies. You're going to see that we are living stones in his building. And that building is a temple. It's the sanctuary. And we'll have more to say about that shortly. But we're going to also see a related analogy. In the temple of the Lord, there were priests that served. First in the tabernacle under Moses, and then in Solomon's temple, there were priests that served. And we're going to see that not only are we living stones in that temple, we are also priests serving in his temple, in his building. We are part of his building involves four key aspects. God's presence in his building. It's going to involve true heartfelt worship that goes beyond even what we sang about this morning as we poured our heart and soul and mind and strength into worshiping the Lord God. The third aspect will be sacrificial service. And then the fourth aspect is what naturally comes about from God's presence, from the presence of an infinitely, perfectly holy God, we're going to be left with the need for personal holiness as being part of his building, part of his temple. So let's get right into this now and see how being part of his building involves God's presence. We read in Exodus 40, and and you're going to love this. You're going to see how scripture ties together. And that the New Testament passages dealing with the church and the individual believer as being God's temple, God's sanctuary, where the presence of God dwelt, all grows out of the Old Testament. 
In Exodus chapter 40, we read, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory, the Shekinah, or Shekinah, this shimmering cloud of brightness that even in the day was bright like the sun. That glory of the Lord filled the temple. In Isaiah 6, the seraphim tell us what the glory of the Lord is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness is what fuels his glory. His holiness is, is tantamount to his glory. Without that holy, holy, holy Lord God, there is no glory. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses, or the tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because the cloud, the Shekinah, had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. God always wanted to dwell with his people. Notice, in the early chapters of Genesis, God walked with Adam in the garden. The voice of the Lord was heard by Adam after, immediately after the fall. In the garden, God dwelt there with man that he created. After he redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 12, the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb protected the firstborn of Israel of all who were covered by the blood. The Lord redeemed them, brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And he, finally he brings them to Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And he's going to give the law to Moses. And he's also going to show Moses on Mount Sinai the pattern of the tabernacle. And he's going to instruct Moses how the builders, how the craftsmen were going to uh, create the tabernacle. God wanted to dwell with his people. When they pitched camp at the end of each day, the tabernacle was set up in the center of the camp. Three of the 12 tribes was were laid out to the north of the tabernacle. Three of them were laid out to the south. Three of them were laid out to the east. Three of them to the west. The tabernacle was in the center, surrounded by the people of God. God always wanted to dwell with his people. But when we come to the New Testament, we find that he's not just going to dwell with his people, he's going to dwell in his people. That was his intent all along. Not only in the past, in the Old Testament, did God dwell with his people, but when we come to Revelation chapter 21, what do we find? God's original intent is no different. The presence of God will be with his people. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out, down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of God. The same word that was used in Exodus. The tabernacle of God is among men. That holy city, New Jerusalem, is the tabernacle of God. 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God's intent doesn't change. He planned this from eternity past, and he will bring it forth throughout eternity future. God's holy presence with his people, but even more for the church-age believer. We are going to be part of that holy temple that God will dwell in. Peter writes this, And coming to him, to Christ, as to a living stone, which was rejected by men. Christ was rejected by men. But he was choice. He was chosen and precious in the sight of God. This is the plan of salvation that God and Christ chose from eternity past. That the triune Godhead chose from eternity past. That the second person of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead, would become a man and be rejected, but provide salvation through his death on the cross. And coming to him as to a living stone, this is the stone which the builders rejected. They wanted no part of that stone. They condemned him. They turned him over to the Roman governor to be executed. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And the one who was rejected has become the very cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. In ancient construction, the first stone that was laid needed to be perfectly square. It needed to be proper, properly formed so that it in place could have any final work done to it and be perfectly square. Otherwise, the foundation would be skewed. Christ in this holy temple, the church, the universal church, is the chief cornerstone. Without him, there is no foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Ephesians 2.20 terms them. Christ is the very first stone that is laid in this holy temple. He became the chief cornerstone. But we also are stones in that temple. And coming to him as to a living stone, notice that those two words, living stone, you also as living stones. The same words that are used of Christ are used of you and I as believers in Christ. Just as God wanted a life of worship from his beloved son, Christ said, I do always those things that please the Father. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You and I also, by virtue of the Holy Spirit living in us, can live the life of Christ, display the character of Christ. We are living stones. We're being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple. We'll see, the scriptures say. Not just uh, a house like we might go home to after the service where we cook our meals and where we sleep. This is a special building. It's a house because it's a habitation of God in the spirit. He dwells in it. But it's also a temple, as we'll see. Peter says this. 
God's presence is going to involve possession. He says, you are a chosen race. Addressing Peter is addressing believers in Christ spread throughout Asia Minor. He's not addressing a single local church. He's addressing many believers in many local churches spread throughout a wide geographical region, which we call Asia Minor. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God actually possesses this building that Peter is speaking about, this holy temple that you and I are living stones in. We are God's possession. His presence involves possession. Just like our presence in our home indicates that we possess that home. Sure, the bank might hold the mortgage for a while, or the landlord might own the apartment that we live in, but clearly our presence indicates some form of possession of it. God's presence in the local church indicates his possession of it. God's presence in the believer in Christ, indwelling the believer through the person of the Holy Spirit, shows that we are his possession. And because a holy God possesses us, when we get to the fourth point of this message, we will see that his holy presence demands personal holiness from our lives. God's Spirit not only dwells in the universal church, from Pentecost to the rapture, Throughout the last 2,000 years almost, the church has been on the earth. It's all over the earth. Not only the universal church, which is the bride and body of Christ, which is in the largest sense this holy temple, but also the local church is his temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, do you not know that you are a temple of God. Not the temple, that's the universal church. A temple. Each local church is a temple that the Spirit of God dwells in. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is addressed to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. If you know your New Testament, there was no church that had more problems than Corinth. They had all sorts of problems. We don't have time to go into them, but they were a problem church. Now that church was a temple of God. God still dwelt there. He hadn't rejected it. He hadn't cast it away. If that be true of Corinth, I believe it must be true of Grace Gospel Church as well because the scripture says it. The you there is a plural you. In, in English, we, we say you. How are you? How are you? Down south, they might say, how are y'all? Or Texas, all y'all. It's easier to distinguish, but you and you sounds the same. Here, though, in the original Greek language that Paul wrote in, there is a you a word that means you, singular, and another word 
that means you plural. They're not spelled anything alike. One has two letters or three, depending on the form of it. The other has five letters. They, they don't sound anything alike. There's no way to mistake them. Here, this is plural. This is the local church, not the individual believer in 1 Corinthians 3. That is the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's why this is the house of the Lord. Grace Gospel Church, not the building, but the people. When we gather together corporately on Sundays and on Thursday evenings, this is the house of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is here. And there should be joy in the house of the Lord. It's the temple of the Lord. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you collectively. Every you here is a plural. It's not the individual believer that's in view. For the temple of God is holy. And we should expect no less. If the holy God is here, his temple should be holy as well. And that is what you, Corinthians, that is what you, Grace Gospel Church, are. You are the temple of God. Did you ever think about that before? Thinking biblically about who you are in Christ as a local church, you are the temple of God. Right here, this morning, right now, God condescends and delights in being amongst us, in our very presence. But it's not just the local church. Three chapters later in 1 Corinthians, Paul gets to the individual believer. Here, your and you are singular. It's not a plural form. It's not y'all. It's you. Do you not know that your body, your individual physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Imagine that. The eternal, omnipotent, infinite God dwells in each and every true believer in Christ. Oh, little old me, what, what can I do for the Lord? You know, I, I don't even know if the Lord notices me. How could we have such thoughts? God dwells in us. What, what we should be rejoicing in is the fact that God himself, the very eternal God, delights and has chosen to dwell in each and every true believer. As you go, as you wake up in the morning and go about your business of the day, you don't go about it alone if you're a believer in Christ. If you've believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you call him Savior and Lord and recognize who he is, he is in you by virtue of the Holy Spirit that he sent. Christ sent the Holy Spirit when he went away. How can you ever have 
a poor self-image or low self-esteem. When the God of creation dwells in you, that's what he thinks of his children who have trusted in his son Jesus Christ for salvation. He doesn't dwell in the unsaved. He dwells in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. What comes out of this fact that God not only dwells in the local church, but he dwells in every single believer? Heartfelt worship is the first thing that we come to that should happen. We are believer priests. Now, some of you may have come out of a a false, non-biblical form of Christianity where only certain people are designated priests because they get special training, because of other characteristics about them. That is not the New Testament teaching. The New Testament is that every believer in Christ is a priest. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What you may not realize is all four of those refer back originally, not here in this passage, but originally to Israel. They were a chosen race. God chose Abraham in Genesis 12 and then made an unconditional covenant with him in Genesis 15. And he said, through him, he would be the father of a nation, a race of people. They were the chosen race. The believer in Christ has been chosen as well from the foundation of the earth. A royal priesthood. As Moses leads them out after the Red Sea to Sinai, and they get there at Sinai, and the glory of God descends upon Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning and thick cloud and shimmering cloud. God calls the people to him. But they're afraid. And they say, no, Moses, you, you, you go, you go. The mount is so holy that even if an animal touches it, it will die. You go and talk to God. We're afraid. God wanted them all to be a priesthood, to be able to go to him directly the way Moses and Aaron and the priests went, but they refused. They would not go, and they bound themselves with an oath. Three times they said in a row, all that the Lord says we will do, all that the Lord says we will do, all that the Lord says we will do, and he would give them his law, and they wouldn't do it. He intended the entire nation not just to be a priesthood, but a royal priesthood. He didn't want kings over them. The Lord was the king over Israel. And he's called the church, every one of us as believers in Christ, to be part of that royal priesthood. A child of the king. That's royalty. To be a priest who could go directly to God. Not just for confession of sin, but for worship, 
to speak to God directly, to make our requests and needs known to him, not through any man or woman, but directly. We are a child of the king, and we are priests who can go directly. We're a holy nation. God gave his law to separate Israel from the wicked, ungodly nation surrounding them. He calls the church and each individual believer to be a holy nation. We should be different than the world. We should be different than our unsaved neighbors and unsaved family. We should be different than our unsaved co-workers. We should be holy, set apart for the purposes of God. And we are a people for God's own possession. He owns us. He is our owner. And as such, he gets to decide how we ought to live our life. He gets to decide what to do with his possession. As believer priests, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices as worship to God. Peter writes again, coming to him as to a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. But not just a house to live in, it's a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, for a priesthood to live in. Not only are we the stones of this temple, but we are the priests in the temple. And what should this holy priesthood do? In ancient Israel, the priests offered up animal sacrifices. They cut the throat of the animal, they cut it into pieces, and they set it on the altar to be burned with fire, a burnt offering, a sweet savor that would go up to the Lord. As the New Testament believer, we are priests, but we don't offer animal sacrifices. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. These are the sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And we offer them through Jesus Christ. We don't offer them on behalf of ourselves. We don't come and say, Lord, I'm your priest. Accept this sacrifice. That's the way of Cain. We come through Jesus Christ. It's only as we present Christ to the Father that he is well-pleased. For only in his beloved Son is he well-pleased. We offer up sacrifices through Jesus Christ. We have no right to enter God's holy presence with prayer, with praise, apart from Jesus Christ. The unsaved don't. But as believers in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, we can enter in to God's presence and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Romans 12 tells us what that key sacrifice is. It's not a dead lamb. It's not a dead goat. It's not a dead ox or bullock on the altar. It's not a dead pigeon or turtle dove. Paul writes in Romans 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. We are to present ourselves alive. What Paul is saying here is every waking moment, we are to be a living sacrifice to God. 
every breath that we draw, every time our heart beats, it beats in service and worship to the Lord. It beats for him. We draw breath from him. And we exhale praise to him. Our entire life, not just on Sunday morning, not just when we're singing, that's musical worship. Sometimes it's just called worship. Sadly, in American Christianity, when people think of worship, all they think of is singing. But even what we're doing now is worship. Whether someone be up here and worshiping by proclaiming God's word, or others are there seated and listening, both are involved in worship. It's not m musical worship, but it's worship. Because God intends, according to Romans 12, 1, that every part of our life be an act of worship to him. Have you ever thought about that? Who you are in Christ? You are a nonstop worshiping machine. Nothing outlasts the Holy Spirit. He's not going to stop producing worship through the living of a holy life through the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips which give thanks to his name, Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament. Our entire lives are to be lived as worship. Imagine that. Even when we go to work and the drudgery of work, that's an act of worship. To present ourselves a living and holy sacrifice not a sinful sacrifice remember sacrifices could have no spot or blemish when they were offered to the lord in the old testament jesus christ as of a lamb without spot or without blemish is what the scripture says about him this is what's acceptable to god is a living and holy sacrifice. Everything we do, even when you relax, even when you go on vacation, that's all an act of worship to God. You do it to bring him glory. And Paul says, this is your reasonable service of worship. This is reasonable. It's not unreasonable for God to say that your entire life, my entire Entire life ought to be a life of worship to him. That's not unreasonable. Our bodies are a living and holy sacrifice, just the way Christ was. For 30 years, 33 years, he was a living and holy sacrifice. From the time he was conceived in the womb, he was living until he laid down his life. He was holy, and he ended it in sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, shed his blood and die. That's exactly what God wants you and I to be, a living and holy sacrifice until the day we breathe our last, till the moment of our last heartbeat. We are a living sacrifice, just like Jesus Christ was. Holy, we ought to be just like Jesus Christ was. And this is our reasonable service of worship. 
Now, I, I don't always mention what the Greek or Hebrew words are, but I want you to hear this. The Greek word there for reasonable is the Greek word logikos. We get our English words logic and logical from it. It's what is the logical conclusion of what Christ did for us, what, who Christ was, a living and holy sacrifice throughout 33 years of his life because of all that he's done, because of the, notice at the beginning of the verse, the mercies of God. If you're a believer in Christ, have you received mercy? Our brother Gilson read it. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. For once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By those mercies of God, because of what he's done. Out of gratitude and appreciation and love for the eternal life that he has given to you. And that you will spend eternity in heaven with God in Christ. By those mercies of God. In view of that, because of that, is it too much for him to ask that we be a living and holy sacrifice? That all that we do, whether it be a hobby, whether it be out on the golf course, whether it be uh, even sitting in front of the television, no matter what we do, we do it as an act of worship to God. He doesn't begrudge us some downtime. He created us. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. So he doesn't begrudge downtime. He knows that we need it. And, but this is reasonable. It's our logical service of worship. This is what makes sense. Anything else would not make sense. It would be illogical. We need to present our entire lives as worship to God. The third point we want to look at, we've looked at God's presence in his building, in his temple, both the, the universal church and the local church, as well as the individual believer. We've seen that besides being the building, we are also the priests in the building, and we're to offer up worship. But as part of his building, this involves sacrificial service. Our service involves offering up spiritual sacrifices as priestly service. And coming to him as to a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. There's this sacrificial aspect that's going to be to our life's worship. Our life is to be an act of worship to the Lord. And sacrifice is going to be part of it. Why? Because sacrifice was part of Christ's life. Christ is our example. Peter will go on in that same chapter to show that Christ left us an example of suffering, that we should follow in his steps. Service and worship for Christ should naturally at some point, not always, but at some point involve sacrifice. Our service at times should involve personal sacrifice. Again, in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Notice the word sacrifice. There is going to be personal sacrifice in living our life in the holiest way possible. 
as we serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think this word sacrifice is what distinguishes the average Christian, man or woman, the average Christian from the great Christian. Sacrifice. Do we just serve the Lord? Do we just worship and serve when it's convenient to do so? Do we do it only when it's easy? Do we do it when it doesn't cost us anything? When there's nothing better on television to watch? How ugly. Those are vulgar words. I'm just trying to illustrate a point. I'm not suggesting that there's anyone here who thinks like that. I'm trying to make a point here. Jesus Christ sacrificed. For 33 years, he sacrificed. He sacrificed when he left the glories of heaven. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That was a sacrifice. Are you and I willing to sacrifice? Or do we only serve and worship? Do we only present ourselves a living and holy sacrifice when it's easy, when it doesn't cost us anything. Sacrifice is what made Jesus Christ stand out. The greatest sacrifice by the greatest person who ever lived. Greatness is determined by personal sacrifice. He sacrificed all. He sacrificed everything. Sacrifice is what I believe, distinguishes the average Christian from the great Christian. God wants you and I, at times, to sacrifice something. Are we willing to do that? I can't tell you what it is for you. I could just say what it is for me. But I think you know. If not, fall to your knees at home. Cry out to God to show you what it is he wants you to sacrifice. It may not be any great thing. Like you'll feel that he's ripping your heart out of you. We don't have a capricious God. We don't have a God that delights a, a, like the God of Quran, of Islam, Allah. Who's capricious. We have a loving God. Our God is loving, he's benevolent, he's wise, he loves his children. Jesus Christ said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God is good and he does good, according to Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good, the psalmist wrote. But he wants sacrifice. Do we only serve when it doesn't cost us anything, when it's convenient? Do we only make time to gather together as a local church when it's convenient? Or are we willing to sacrifice in order to gather together, in order to worship God with our lives? Our service, one way that he wants us to sacrifice is our service is going to involve proclaiming the truth about God. 
Now, there's a lot of other ways, but one that Peter specifically mentions in our central passage of this morning's message is it's going to involve proclaiming the truth about God. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that. Here's the reason why. Here's the purpose in which he's called you out and identified you and I as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are there excellencies in Christ and in God? Is there? There is. Name one thing that is not excellent about God and Christ. You can't name a single thing. Everything about them is excellent. Don't we like to talk about excellent things? I mean, look at any Massachusetts or Boston team, okay? If it wins the championship in its sport, whether it be hockey or basketball or baseball or football, people are proclaiming the excellencies of their team. Well, you are on Team Jesus this morning. Proclaim his excellencies. And I'll tell you one of the best ways to do it, Thursday nights, these videos and the testimonies from Roy and the role-playing that Jim and Roy do to illustrate these techniques that we can use to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of Christ. Be here. It's unbelievable. I, if you saw me last Thursday, now you wouldn't have because I was back in the uh, uh, audio-visual booths, and the people were looking forward, so they wouldn't see me. I'm grinning from ear to ear. When I hear Gilson or David or Joey or Fred preach an excellent message, I'm grinning from ear to ear. Whenever I hear the word of God proclaimed in power and in truth and in conviction and passion, I'm grinning. I look like a kid in a candy shop. Look over at me sometime when someone else is up here preaching. And I'm probably grinning from ear to ear. I was grinning as Roy was explaining how he uses these million-dollar bills and how he gets people to take them and explain it. Roy is an evangelist. Me, I just do the work of an evangelist. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. I've shared the gospel hundreds of times with people, and you can count on the fingers of one hand, and you'd have fingers left over, the number of people who have actually prayed with me, decided they want to cry out to God for forgiveness, and they pray with me to receive Christ, and then their life has been changed by it. For decades, they walk with the Lord in some cases. It's less than five, and I've shared the gospel hundreds of times. What's more important, proclaiming his excellencies or being concerned about being rejected? or thought to be a fool, or a Jesus freak. Proclaiming his excellencies, and you will learn how to do that on Thursday nights. I, I, I really encourage you to come out. It's not too late. There's a review involved at the beginning of each uh, video, and you'll understand. And, and, and there's printed handouts as well that have review points, so you'll understand what's already been covered. 
But this is part of being a living sacrifice, proclaiming his excellencies. It's also going to involve personal holiness, and we're going to have to skip a lot of this for the sake of time. We only have 10 minutes. But in the Old Testament, priests were to be holy to God. They didn't farm. They didn't engage in different trades. They were wholly dedicated in their life towards the service and worship of the Lord God. And even when Aaron would come before the Lord, and especially on the Day of Atonement, when he would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of Israel, Aaron would be wearing not just garments, but holy garments, unlike the clothing that anyone else would wear in Israel. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, and you shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on his turban, and it shall be on the front of his turban, the turban on the head. It's not just how we live. It's how we think. What are the thoughts of our mind? We want to learn to think biblically. We want to learn to think holy thoughts, holiness to the Lord. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and it shall always be on Aaron's forehead. There's no time as a believer priest that we ought to have sinful thoughts. It should always be on our forehead, holiness to the Lord. Holiness wages war against sin. Peter, in the passage that Gilson read for us, he starts out in verse 4, and he's going to finish in verse 11. Coming to Christ as to a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he finishes by saying, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Because there is a holy God indwelling you and I, that means we need to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Because he is holy, because we should have that same holiness to the Lord on our mind, the way Aaron had it on his turban, we should abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Our life should be a holy life, separated and devoted to the Lord, even when we go about our daily business. We're going to skip a whole bunch of this. I, I think we've, uh, we've already seen a lot of it. In, in conclusion, what we've seen is that God's holy presence indwells the church, the local church, and the individual believer. Because of that, we should have personal holiness that expresses itself in a life of living sacrifice to the Lord. You know, I love the music that we have here. It blesses my heart so much. Sometimes I, I even weep when I, when I think about the lyrics that we sing on Sunday mornings. But I'm a hymns guy. I love traditional hymns. But I love the music we have here. 
as well. I want to share with you the lyrics. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. If I had known a week ago that uh, I was going to be preaching this message, I would have asked our brother Gilson to sing my favorite hymn. Uh, We've all sung uh, a modern version. Uh, Sometimes our brother Paul does it, of Take My Life and Let It Be, written by Francis Ridley Havergal. She also wrote other hymns, including my favorite one. What I like about it is all of the lyrics, all of the words are as if the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to you and I. He's speaking, and we're hearing what he has to say. And usually I cannot sing this without breaking down at my own sinfulness, my own unfaithfulness, as the Lord speaks through the words of these hymns. I I hope I can get through the slides now. If not, I'll just give you time to read them, and, and I'll advance them slowly. The name of the hymn is, I Gave My Life for Thee. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? My Father's house of light, my glory circled throne, I left for earthly night, for wandering, sad, and lone. I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left aught for me? I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left aught for me? I suffered much for thee, more than thy tongue can tell, of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? And I have brought to thee down from my home above salvation full and free, my pardon and my love. I bring, I bring rich gifts to thee. What hast thou brought to me? I bring, I bring rich gifts to thee. What hast thou brought to me? Today, will you begin to see yourself as a priest to God? Not just a believer, but a priest to God, part of a holy temple that is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Will you begin to practice a holy life worthy of a priest to God? Will you be willing to if the Lord ever asks, to sacrifice, to serve, and to worship him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we thank you so much for the gift of your beloved son. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you indwell us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that for your glory and your name's sake, that you would help us moment by moment to lay down our lives for you, to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to you through your son, Jesus Christ. And if you would do this to transform us, 
in this way to be like your son. We will give you all the praise and glory for doing so, both now and throughout eternity. Amen.